Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 55. We are down to two men again. No Griff this time. Hopefully we'll have Griff on in the future. Uh, schedule conflicts once again with his work, so that's too bad. We'll be missing him out. But uh, it's too bad because this is a really big episode. Uh, big ed- episode for our reread project. We're going to focus on volume 12 this time. And as everyone knows, if you're reading, if you're on Skullnet.net and you're listening to this podcast, you already know the significance of that volume, and it is the beginning of the eclipse, and it's pretty much the culmination of the Golden Age arc. It's what the entire flashback has kind of been leading up to. So, lots to cover. Uh, I intend to split this episode in half, and we'll see how far we go. But uh, uh, I'm guessing we're going to get probably around the time of the God Hand's introduction, and it may be a little further than that, but that's probably all I expect out of this one. But Still a lot of ground to cover, and we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, that's that's about how far my notes go. Let me put it that way for today. So, as always, we like to start these episodes by talking about um, kind of where this volume fits into the context of the rest of the series, and it's I don't know. It's one of the more difficult ones to do because it's so what happens, the events of the eclipse, and even the events that precede the eclipse. These are things that, you know, in a way they scarred and ruined the Falcons for, you know, being part of the ceremony. But it also it leaves a big, you know, scar in the minds of readers. The eclipse is something that's continually referenced throughout the whole series. It's like a tragic event or, a, you know, a world-turning event. There's that, that pace that's set throughout the entire volume and it doesn't let up even to the end, even to the end of this volume. And also the eclipse itself is actually kind of straddles two volumes, 12 and 13. But uh, I think it's actually broken up pretty well in, in terms of where it would split. I like the way it's bookended more or less at the moment of sacrifice with a little bit beyond that. And then 13 is all about what happens after that moment. To, I like that, that it's, it splits it up in that way. It could have been worse uh, in terms of how things are split in general in Berserk. Nicely put together volume. I've tried to focus on this a little bit in the past, but uh, Miura has made focusing on the moon pretty Im- for pretty important scenes. And uh, I think he puts the moon there for a number of reasons, but in in this particular case, I think it's to show basically that these beings have power even over things that are outside, you know, human control. That even something like the eclipse has some kind of dark purpose to it. That it's not it's not merely a cosmological event; it's actually a demonic event that they have control over. Well, yeah. That being said. Uh... I think it's interesting that it's, you know, very specific, you know, like it's not just any event. It has to be every 216 years. At the same time, it looks like they are dependent on that particular event mm-hmm. to be able to manifest themselves. So it's, uh, you know, it's, there's, I think there's two sides to that coin, you know, that they have power over certain kinds of events, but at the same time, they're also dependent on them. I mean, we've never heard Shirke's interpretation of what the magical power of a solar eclipse might be, but we've heard what she says about full moons. One can imply that there's some kind of other energy property of a solar eclipse that the God Hand are able to tap into. Yeah, yeah I agree. This with that. kind of ceremony. I actually did some extensive Wikipedia-ing and Googling on to check, you know, many different sources, not just one, not just Wikipedia, about what pagan beliefs are for solar eclipses or people in the, you know, occult belief solar eclipses. And multiple sources talk about the solar eclipse being uh, ex- an exceptionally powerful event and has the potential for metamorphosis. That's, that's one source. Another source says, uh, the, an eclipse can give you the power to break from a cocoon and give you a completely new form. 
And all of them focusing on metamorphosis, which I thought was particularly telling for the volume's cover and, of course, what happens for Femto and Griffith in uh, the, the whole ceremony. So I just thought that was cool. I'd never really thought about that before or considered the actual you know, historical implications of what people believe the power yeah, of. Sim- symbolism. Right, of, of the eclipse to be or a solar eclipse to be. Any uh, general impressions on the volume yourself, Azil, before we get into the cover? <laughs> Well, no, I agree with what you said about uh, uh, the feeling of foreboarding. You know, it's uh, that's very present from the first page and until you know the shit uh, hits the fan. So, and yeah, yeah, I agree with that. As far as the volume, you know, the way uh, twelve and thirteen are divided, you know, I mean, the eclipse is divided in between the two. Yeah, I think it's fine. I'm not sure they really tried to optimize that, but uh, in any way, it, it works. It works. It's not the, the worst uh, way it could have been divided. So I, I also agree with that, you know, generally speaking. <clears throat> Moving on to the cover, uh, it's one of the more representational uh, covers in the series. You know, it's not depicting, oh, well, obviously it's depicting an actual event, but the way it's showing it is very figurative. And yeah. that's not always the the approach Mira takes. In fact, he doesn't do it very often at all. The only other one I can think of is like Volume Twenty's cover with Casca <laughs> and the and the the, ch- the child, the way she's. Okay, it's a uh, it's pretty representative, you know, the one with the child because we actually see like the child really. You know, I agree with what you say. It's a you mean the symbolic aspect yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with that. Uh, the fact you know, there's actually two things I would say about this cover. Is uh, the first. It really hints right away that a, a big event is coming, you know, which is not always the case, you know, like you said. But I mean, you know, a new reader right from the start, you know, like this is where, you know, Femto is coming back, that kind of stuff. It's very clear. And that goes for the inside cover as well. And yeah, uh, thematically, I find it interesting that he chose to represent like Femto as emerging from a, a beheret, like a chick from an egg or something like that, even though it doesn't really happens that way but it's also interesting that it uh, <clears throat> it's actually mirrored during the incarnation ceremony you know later on mm-hmm. when uh, the baby apostle eats you know the baby and all that stuff so i think it's interesting that not only does it show here and you know uh, the symbolic of it is interesting but it also happens later on yeah the uh, egg apostle actually you know kind of cracks or hatches down the middle right whenever the ceremony you know comes to its completion yeah. Right before the t- the tower crumbles, I should say. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's interesting how it parallels. One other thing about the cover, I mean, obviously, I love the colors of it as well. Uh, I've actually always thought of Femto not necessarily as this purple or bluish tint, but kind of just like super black, or just like everything about it is black, or and look like the God Hand as well. Like a lot of their outfits just look like they're so dark that they just they're just giving off just a little bit of detail with the light that's reflected in them, you know. But uh, obviously, the coloring here implies that it is a bluish, uh, purple kind of thing. Well, you know, actually, I, I agree with what you said. I think, you know, like in that cover, he looks just, you know, to me, deep blue, uh, mm-hmm. kind of deep blue. But yeah, it's uh, pretty light, and uh, I, I think it might actually be darker than that, a darker, you know, shade of blue, much darker in uh, in actuality. But you know, for the sake of the cover and the Red and blue association. I think he went for that. But when you see, for example, the cover of uh, Volume Thirty Four, you know, uh, he's he seems to be a darker shade of uh, of blue on that one. So I think it's not necessarily to be taken, you know, like as this this is exactly how it is. You mm-hmm. know, sure. 
So, but yeah, yeah, we do see, I mean, in almost all the color uh, illustrations, we do see Femto as being blue, like mm-hmm. it's dark blue, but it's not really profoundly dark. So I guess maybe that's just so it is. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk about real quickly was the, the color shading, the, the skin tone we get just within the mask. I've actually been of two minds of what that is. Is I, you know, for a while I thought it was Griffith's skin, but if you look at it, it looks more like it's just a light emanating from within the, the helmet itself. And you're seeing the curvature of where his mouth would be is actually the curvature of the helmet. So what, what, what's your take on that? What is your bend to take of the, the skin tone color on the inside of the helmet? Is that supposed to be his skin or is that supposed to be a kind of glowing effect from within the helmet? Well, you know, that's a, that's an interesting question. I honestly, I've only ever thought it was just, you know, the color of his skin. Mm-hmm. Like his face was just, you know, not well defined, but just shown. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I, I think I still just kind of think it's just that. Okay. Totally could be. It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah. I never really thought about it, to be honest. Sure. We'll move on to the, uh, in the intro page, we have the first few of the God Hand. Uh, well, first few of the God Hand. First of the God Hand in a long time, let's say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, I, what I like about this actually is it's a nice kind of uh, – I like the different levels Miura chose here. You know, They're all doing sort of different things at different levels, Slom being the foreground, Conrad being the, the least unique kind of off in the corner. Ubik's upside down. And Void has a prominent role, you know, over all of them, sitting basically, you know, high on like an altar, so more or less. I like like the, the positioning sort of implies a hierarchy, at least for Void, anyway. Well, yeah, he's always been kind of depicted as being the the big guy. Sure. About their costumes, we we did this a little bit in Volume Three, but I, I wanted to go into it now as well, and we can talk about this more when they're actually formally introduced as well, but. You mentioned Ozil during the Volume Three reread that you know I couldn't quite put my finger on what the motif of their design is in, in terms of their you know carapace. Basically, it's like an insect's armor or an insect's uh, a carapace. I mean, yeah. particular, particularly when you get a closer look at Void's cape, it's uh, has like wavy lines to it, kind of like you'd imagine like the wings of a beetle looking like really up close, or. Yeah. Or like an oil slick or something like that. Just really just – I'm imagining, like I said before, for the cover of what I imagine Femto's uh, color to be, it's something just so deeply dark that it only gives off some light when light is reflected onto it. You see just the details and you get a better impression of that when Void is pointing his finger uh, towards the, the screen or the page, I should say. And you know you can only see just a little bit of detail in the way it's shaped because it's so deeply dark. And I thought that was fitting for the characters as well, which they're supposed to be, you know, among all beings in Berserk, those that are the most deeply immersed in darkness. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. And, uh, yeah, they've pretty much always looked like, uh, how to say, shittiness, I guess, you know, like, uh, shitting is, uh, <clears throat> oh, kind of. Mat- yeah. So shitting is a material that, uh, insects, you know, carapace are made from. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, uh, the exoskeleton of, uh, insects and other animals. I think, um, you know, shrimps and other stuff like that also have, you know, I think that kind of carapace. I think it's uh, very close. And in any case, yeah, they, they look like that as well. It's what uh, I always thought. And I guess uh, for the caves and stuff, it's uh, very leathery, you know, that's what it evokes to me. Right, yeah. 
we'll talk about more about the designs as they're individually introduced later on in the in the episode. But uh, that covers the intro there. And there's also this um, that was the volume introduction page. And there's when the actual volume starts, we get an episode introduction page for uh, Requiem on the Wind, which is the yeah. I, I like this actually. I'd never really focused on this page before, but it's nice. It's basically it's a grave marking. I'd never really thought about it before, but the rocks that are piled like that. And the sword yeah. dug into the ground. It's, it's. Just, I'm assuming it's a makeshift grave. Yeah, and I've, I've heard blows and the helmet. It's uh, mm-hmm. pretty clear, I think. And uh, the sword is all chipped and you know blood spattered, and it's it's clearly been through a lot. Also, I like the, the framing of this as well. It's like a book is closing or the door is closing on this. You know, you have these wide margins on the side, as if you're just getting a glimpse of it, as if the door is closing on the this area of the falcon as well. Yeah. Or it could just merely be a vertical framing device by Miura, but that's 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 how I read into it anyway. Well, yeah, I think uh, you know, it doesn't really matter. You know, it just uh, visually it looks like you know a thin slice, and yeah, like you say, uh, to me it evokes very simply the, the fact uh, a chapter is you know closing, mm-hmm. something is ending, and you know it's uh, the dusk of an era. <clears throat> the volume starts with them on the outskirts of Midland. It actually calls it the the border region. <laughs> Yeah. Which, um, well, go ahead. You know, now I was going to say, I find it interesting that, uh, they've moved quite a, quite a bit in between the two episodes and so the, the two volumes because pretty much like the last time we saw them with Wild, you know, they were still in a, you know, woodsland or forest around area, you know, and, uh, now they're in that big plains and it's specified at the border of Midland. So it's, it's just implied. It's not shown, but they've actually traveled quite a bit since uh, the end of the last episode so I, I find that interesting that Mira didn't waste any time showing that it's just you know bam they're at the border so we don't know exactly how much has traveled since the uh, last episode yeah I mean it couldn't have been too many days because as this whole scene shows mm. they're still processing what has happened with Wild's yeah. revelation of Griffith's you know condition they're still at a crossroads for what's going to happen next. And of course, that's what this whole episode is about is them accepting the truth of the situation and then trying to hash out, well, what's left of the Falcons? What's, what's going to remain of us? What yeah. I like about this whole section of the, uh, the volume is the lighting. You know, it's called Twilight. Uh, actually, eventually it is an episode called Twilight. Warriors and Twilight is the next episode. But anyway, it's the the sunset. You have to imagine the setting here. Uh, this with the sun going down, it's probably coloring the whole scene as well. But also, there's there's darkness uh, and shading because of the hills and everything. You can see it on almost all the pages, particularly the one here with Casca looking at all the troops. You know, just halfway down her body is shadow. So, and we see yeah, that as those are clouds also that play a role. I think. <clears throat> sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Because you're right. It does shift and change, but. I just like that it's a nice, t- like, you know, atmospheric effect that's throughout this whole section. Uh, gives yeah. some, depth, some depth of it to the visuals. I think the mood is very melancholic. You know, this episode, I always get the, that feeling when it starts, you know, you see the planes, the clouds, the wind, the, the silence, you know. I always find it very, very melancholic and very fitting for what is going on. Yeah. <laughs> what I also like, you know, you mentioned it before, but you're right. These are quiet scenes for the most part. Um you know, this whole, the first two, almost three pages, there's no dialogue. Uh, it's just wordless, uh, exchanges of looks. Cause they're at a, you know, they're at a crossroads, like I've said. Uh, you know, even Guts doesn't mention Griffith, but you can see him looking over at Griffith's tent and considering his condition, uh, wordlessly. All that happens wordlessly. So, you know, that was there's cool. also, yeah, 
there's also a thing that I find interesting is that while Casca is facing everyone, you know, I'm guessing, uh, how to say, playing to address them, mm-hmm. Guts is at the back, you know, he stays at the back. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the fact, I, it's interesting to me that he's always, you know, aside from the rest, always setting himself apart. Wow, yeah. So, yeah, I, it's just, you know, a, a little detail, but uh, I find it interesting. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I mean, it's actually unique for a couple, couple of reasons. Also because he's closer to Casca than the others as well. Of course. And he also knows the details of the situation and everything like that. But yeah, and he was, he's not really a part of them anymore. There's yeah. many, many reasons, but yeah, the fact is he's, you know, set up like that. <clears throat> so they're looking to, well, to Carcass is what starts it out, but they're, they're looking to Casca for some kind of assurances that, you know, everything's going to be okay, but. Obviously, no one can offer that. You know, Judo, Casca can't bring herself to say it, actually. Judo is the one who yeah. con- confirms that Griffith can't speak. Uh, Carcass addresses Casca, but she is actually shaking. She can't address them. and Yeah, she can't even speak to them. I like, you know, how to say, I, I, I think those shots are all very powerful, you know. The way, you know, Carcass loses it and he breaks his sword, you know. It's, it's, I find it very symbolic. And, you know, you see there's a close-up on all their faces. You know, where they are again silent. It's very, you know, very, very deep, very powerful scenes. Yeah, and we also see a lot of the members of the Falcons that we wouldn't normally be focusing on. Just kind of the 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 every, everyday, average Falcon. Yeah. Inst- instead of really going for the money shot on those that we're familiar with, which he does eventually give. But I, what I like about this is, you know, being the number one Carcass fan, also is that it's it's Carcass that voices what everyone else <laughs> fails yeah. to. You know. The, uh, the, the guy who always says it's on top of his head, basically, you know, whether it's, uh, biting or not, he's the one to break his sword. He's the one to be the most visually angry or upset about this situation, you know. You could tell he invested quite a bit of, uh, his life and his hope and, and hopes in Griffith and having to see that crash down, uh, obviously, yeah. he took it pretty hard. I, I think, yeah, it's, uh, I also think it's very fitting that it seems I would be voicing everyone's thoughts and, Warriors, because he's kind of the everyman, you know, mm-hmm. the guys that was in it, not just, you know, for principles and stuff, but yeah, he wanted to, to be rich and he wanted to get glory and, but he also believed in it and he was invested and he was faithful to the end. So yeah, I think it's fitting he would be speaking for all of them. And right. as you can see, you know, the faces of the little guys, you know, yeah, they're all very shaken by this. And at the end of Carcass's little speech, he, he actually can't say it. He, he can't bring himself to say that it's it's over. And uh, it's actually the, the narrator picks it up, which is a rare yeah. moment of narration saying that uh, he could not bring himself to say only the wind announced the end of their fight. I, I wonder if it's what Guts is thinking, actually. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah. it's uh, Because of the way it's shown, you know, it starts with him sitting there looking – you know, last in sort. So. Oh, that's a cool thought. I've never really thought about that before. Almost immediately, there's talk of who's going to, you know, lead the Falcons away from this moment. You know, who's going, who's the most natural leader. Uh, Griffith made the band of the Falcon, uh, Judo says, but, you know, Casca's the one that's been here. But he actually uh, interjects when they turn to Casca saying that she's had too much on her shoulders this past year and to, to ask more of her would be cruel. Yeah. You know, I actually find it interesting that some people immediately come forward and ask Casca uh, to step in and to keep going. Mm-hmm. You know, and that Judo has to tell them to drop it. Because, you know, I mean, 
even though everybody says Griffiths was the one, Griffiths did everything, you know, you've got these guys. It's also, I find it quite realistic, actually, that people would be, you know, like willing to say, well, you know, let's just keep going anyway. You know, even though Griffiths is, you know, he's out of the picture, let's just keep going. So, well, these guys don't, don't ha- they don't have anything. They don't have any other options. You know, some of these people even came, particularly Gaston, you know, abandoned their life to come with them. Yeah. And so they have no other options at this point, more or less. Um, I do like that Judo stands up for her as well. Uh, you know, voicing something that was kind of on the tips of the tongues of even readers at this point, that she wasn't prepared to continue this fight either. You know, we, we've well, known that she yeah. was at the end of a rope for a while, but not everyone knew that her mental state was at that point. Of course, she was, she has been hiding it. But, you know, I also like that she's reluctant to tell them she's got all the plans, you know. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to, to abandon them, and she, she even tells Guts as much. So I think it's a, it's a pretty noble trait of character, and it's something she's often represented in the series at this point. Some kind of altruism, you know, that even so she, she tells Gus, she, I mean, she, she makes it clear that she wants to be with him, but she doesn't want to abandon them. She doesn't want to let them down. And so it's, uh, it's pretty selfless of her. And generally speaking, I think it's, uh, this episode is a time of reflection for the whole band. You know, you see them, even Gus, you see him clenching his fists and everything like that. So, well, he's, st- I think he's, it's, uh, he stands up as if to say, well, I'll lead yeah. them. You know, you you never quite hear that, but uh, whenever Casca pulls him aside immediately after this, you know, she says, "What were you going to tell them?" And he says, "To finish your battles." Yeah. Uh, so the implication is that he was going to be the leader. Which, man, that would be weird. Just imagining how that would go. <clears throat> but yeah, this whole scene after this, uh, as Casca walks away, basically asking them to give her time to decide. What they'll do. And she's talking about meeting up with the other group of the Falcons, which we know they're already been, you know, annihilated by apostles, but of course they don't know yeah. that. So there are talks of a, a future meetup that of course never happens, but she brings uh, guts aside and uh, basically says, you know, uh, can you tell Griffith to finish his fight? Um, as he's sitting there, you know, crippled in the wagon. Uh, this she poignantly describes their situation, and, and actually, it's something I touched on earlier, kind of stealing her own words. That you know, everyone had invested so much in what Griffith had offered, the dream that he had prepared for them, and to have that ripped away. You know, what can you tell them to, to comfort them? Yeah. Mm. Well, yeah, it's you know, I mean, it's also what I was referring to is the fact that God is strong, and he can tell people to be strong like him. But <clears throat> the fact is. People aren't as strong as him, you know, generally speaking. So it's not something you you can't just, you know, expect everybody to be like that. And she understands it and she tells him as much. And uh, you see this scene of the guys, you know, who are just sitting there. They look miserable. And I think even Guts realizes that uh, when she tells him. But then she actually makes it clear to him that, you know, she also wanted someone to be with you know, with her, and she implies guts, you know. <clears throat> also, like, uh, in the scene you were just describing, the weapons are all piled up, you know, as if the, you know, they know there's nothing left. There's nothing to even, even to fight for at this point. But yeah, I'm sorry to interject. That was the more significant part of the scene was her embracing guts. Uh, what I like about this moment, though, is that she actually, um, she's, she puts her head on guts' shoulder, and then she kind of, like, pushes away for a moment. Uh, raises her head saying, saying she wants to check on Griffith. You know, it's like she's 
she won't let herself be happy. She won't let herself just embrace this moment. She has to. I think she also. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I think she also wants to stay, you know, like she doesn't want to stay depressed. She wants mm. to stay active to try to, you know, not just, you know, start, you know, crying on his shoulder. I'm not saying crying. She doesn't cry. But my point is we know her state of mind and she lets it, you know, be known to guts. But she does She can't afford to be weak at this point because she's, you know, the commander. So she wants, you know, I don't know. At least that's why, you know, no, no, I think this it's- is that. Yeah, she, she wants to keep going and to be strong, you know, at least for the time being. Quite simply, she doesn't want to dwell on the moment. She's clearly yeah. trying to forge ahead. Yeah, uh, she, she's putting on a bold face, you know. Again, you know, probably for two yeah. at this point. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, It's a very, you know, a very Japanese attitude towards things. Just keep on going ahead. Don't actually focus on what, you know, internalize everything. Don't deal with it. Just internalize well, it's, it. It's also... I think it's also something that's very particular to Casca's character, you know. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the fact this kind of selflessness, you know, which we'll see more of, you know, later on in this, in this uh, volume. But yeah, she she'll do it for the team. She can't afford to let you know herself be comforted. She has to go on. She has to she has to be the one that comforts and not the other way around. You know that kind of stuff. It's very I find it very noble, but obviously it's also something that you can't keep doing indefinitely. Yeah, I mean, actually, in this scene, and we'll see it later as well, I, I think she's deluding herself about what she truly wants. You know, she ultimately tells Guts that he has to go and that she has to take care of Griffith. It's clearly not the choice that she would prefer. Her principles, yeah. her, her principles basically force her to make that decision for her well, without yeah, her but she, being what she wants. You, you know, actually, I don't think she's deluding herself at all. She clearly knows what she wants and she, she tells Guts so, you know, I mean, when she mm-hmm. says, she wanted, you know, uh, she wanted, you know, when she's putting, uh, you know, her head on Gus' shoulder, she's essentially telling him what she wants is to be with him. So, uh, but the thing is, yeah, she, she's got principles, you know, and as we see later on, she reflects on the fact Griffiths took care of her when she needed it and she needs to, at least she feels that she owes him and she needs to give back, even though she's actually been giving back for years, but that's not how she views it. And so the thing is, yeah, she's, you know, trying to, performs the ultimate sacrifice where she she'll you know stay even though she doesn't want to but she also you know tell God to actually go on with his life because she knows it's what he wants to and she do, doesn't want him to sacrifice his own future for her you know yeah so it's you know it's of course you know obviously it's a very dramatic thing and uh, that actually makes everybody miserable and so it works, you know, for the purpose of the story, you know, to create tension and, st- and stuff like that. But beyond that, it's, uh, I think it's pretty realistic. And it's, you know, in a way, it's, you know, how I picture, uh, uh, how to say, a very heroic, you know, woman like Casca would, you know, do things. Sure. Taking, yeah. it, taking it all upon herself and just, you know, sacrificing her own, you know, happiness and her own life for the sake of others. Yeah. We get an interstitial episode uh, page here with Guts and Casca. Uh, I've always kind of thought of this, just the way they're holding each other. It, it, we've never seen them be this close or this openly close with each other like this, so casually uh, public displays, displays of affection. It's almost, you know, you can sort of envision is what they might have ended up like, you know, years of, of, in the future had she chosen him, had this had the eclipse not happened in this fantasy land. 
You know, maybe they yeah. would have grown that close like that. But uh, as it is, it, it almost seems like just a mocking photo for what eventually happens, you know. There's also one more thing I want to say is that for the previous episode, we actually see <clears throat> Guts and Casca her taking care of Griffith's bandages and Guts outside with that uh, that sentence, you know, would say, mm-hmm. again, you know, <clears throat> someone near me. And I think it implies that they're both, you know, thinking about that, you know, that they want to be with each other and, you know, what what the future has in store for them, that kind of stuff. So they're both reflecting on that and that's what their minds are preoccupied with. Right. And I mean, this, this scene here and the way, particularly, as you said, the way it's left, it sets us up for the conflict that comes just in a few pages where she says she has to stay with him. You know, it's, it's sort of like making the reader wonder what she'll choose. Anyway, the episode starts uh, with her in Griffith's tent. She's putting bandages on it and, and she's reflecting. You can see Griffith's actually smiling in a couple of these little small scenes. Um, she's reflecting on how small his hands are, these hands that once gave her comfort, you know, just by putting his arm on her, you know, she could ease, uh, her feelings. But, uh, you and, know, and the fact he had, you know, that crazy ambition, you know, the ends that wanted to grab everything and, but now he's so fragile, that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And it's, but, it's tough on her, actually. You can see she trembles. She's really, you know, shaken by his state. Right. It's, it's, it's a little too emotional for her to be, to have those roles reversed so much and, and to see this man that she adored reduced to this state. You know, she, yeah. she begins shaking. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> what happens next is a little strange, at least in terms of the sequence of events. She, um, she accidentally brushes against the water and she looks away for a moment. But in that time that she looks away, Griffith basically raises up. And, well, you uh, know, I think you, you're going a bit fast here. Okay. You know, the, as she's reflecting like that and, you know, even thinking that now, like I said earlier, now it's her turn to take care of him like he took care of her before, that kind of stuff. You see, you know, he has his look in his eye, you know, that's uh, it's the falcon stare, you know, the same one he gave, you know, Foss. At least that's how I interpret it, you know, that kind of crazy look. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, when she brushes aside the water and he gets down, she, you know, <clears throat> turns back and when she turns up, he's, in you know, some kind of raise himself and he's, he lets himself fall on her, you know. <clears throat> right. <clears throat> but, uh, I mean, I don't think there's any mistaking his intentions here, particularly with the panel. Oh, yeah, of very, course. The lower panel on that page when he's falling on her, showing their, you know, bodies together like that. It's, it's clear he's trying to basically cash in those feelings that she once had for him, those feelings of admiration to, to make him feel like he's in control. But Of course. And you, are, you can actually tell as much by her reaction, you know. The mm-hmm. way she says his name, even the look on her face, and she actually says, tells him to stop, you know. But when she sees how, I mean, his state and how miserable he is, how pathetic he is, she just, you know, uncomfortably lets it, you know, yeah. lets it happen, you know. Why it's she just, a, just it comes across as very frightening and, and, and pitiful, particularly that long shot. Well, when they're face to face as well, it's it's difficult. He's shaking. He has that look in his eyes. Uh, he clearly has no control over himself in terms of what he can make his body do, and he realizes that as well. So he just kind of lays limp on top of her. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's very simply, it's just pathetic, you know. Of and uh, I think the boss realizes it, and she's obviously uncomfortable because of that. So. 
it's also what prompts her to to say that you know she she'll want to stay because he's in that kind of state you know right also i mean, I mean this, i love the visual the, the the visual we're left with in that scene with just a little bit of light coming in highlighting their bodies as his feet are just kind of turned inward in a very limp fashion it's just a very uh just i don't know creepy scene <laughs> visuals of him as well Anyway, we turn to Judo and Guts who are outside uh, kind of reflecting on where they've landed and where they were. What I like about this scene in addition to, you know, just Judo being Judo, I, I like all the little mannerisms and gestures that Miura has thrown in that kind of give him personality, you know. Judo asks if Guts is going to go back to training and he, you know, kind of mimes, you know, how Guts swings his sword when he's training. Yeah, Miura. it even looks like how Guts, Guts is holding his sword when he lies on his back, you know. He often... You often see in the series, you often see him, you know, like pointing his sword at the sky and looking at it, that kind of stuff. And yeah, it also, you know, it's also what judo is miming. I mean, that that could be interpreted like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. It uh, grabs a reed, or I'm assuming it's a reed. I'm not quite sure, but you know, chews on it thoughtfully as he's just considering things. Uh, you know, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just going to say it's uh, <clears throat> it's interesting that. When Gus asks him what he wants to do, he's considering to, you know, uh, how to say, take up the old members of the band of the Falcon and to start a, a band of thieves, you know. So he's considering actually being a leader himself, uh, <clears throat> which is, you know, I don't know, I think it's an interesting way, you know, for his character to develop, you know, that he has that kind of ambition, despite not often showing, you know, much ambition, you know, he has that kind of ambition and he, he encourages Gus to go and to take Casca with him, but he will stay and he will, you know, take care of Griffiths with his, you know, these band of thieves he wants to to form, you know. So <clears throat> I find it interesting for his character. Yeah, he's played second string for so long in terms of the leadership. So, yeah, it, for him to have that kind of idea. But, I mean, I think it's kind of a makeshift plan. It's just like, well, where will we go? We have this, we have this, you know, trained soldiers. What do you do? What can you possibly do? And so... <laughs> But in terms of him taking a leadership role, it's kind of it's all, it's almost kind of a process of elimination. You know, if he's if he's saying take Casca with you, guts, which is his plan, then who's left on the leadership roles? You know, Pippin, yeah, of and, course, and, and Judo, and that's pretty much it. You know, so. I mean, you have to realize that you know that's an, another interesting thing when he actually tells Gus to take Casca with him. You know, there's a shot of guts, and uh, I think that shot shows that Gus realizes that Judo actually loves her. You know. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, I agree. So, yeah, and uh, so you know, the thing is, Casca could stay, but Judo doesn't want her to stay, and he even jokes that she's too, you know, serious for that. She couldn't, you know, lead a band of thieves and everything like that. So, you know, it's it's an interesting way to see. It. In a way, Judo is also sacrificing himself. You know, like he doesn't have anything better to do. You know, he said, "I'm still a member of the band of the Falcon. I'll stay and I'll lead these guys, but you guys go and be happy, on, oh, you know, on your own." So it shows that they all have, you know, those kind of feelings inside. Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of self-sacrifice happening here at the very end. Um, but also, I, I like how he jokes, like you said, about she'd be too stern to lead a, a band of thieves, you know. When really, though, the the real reason is, and as you already touched on, is that, you know, I, I think more than just he has feelings for her, I think it's also that, you know, it's unspoken, but I got the impression that basically he doesn't want her life to be that. He know, he knows that that's not what she wants to stay yeah. with Griffith. You know, 
he's kind of he's trying to make the choice for her. He tells Guts to take her with her, take her with you, even if you have to drag her. You know, he he knows that she's going to gravitate towards that because of her, her principles, but it's not the life that he would prefer that she leads. You know, yeah, and she, she'd be she'd be miserable. And it's true that she, he probably couldn't be with her anyway. She'd just be like a nun, you know, devoted to Griffiths or something like that. I don't yeah. know. The look in his face in that panel as well, uh, you know, I can't really gesture which one I'm talking about, but the one right before, you know, guts. Yeah, yeah. Got, I, I know the one you mean. He looks very reflective, you know, he's uh, yeah. almost lost in thought. Yeah, it's the most serious he looks in this whole scene, actually, and the most somber as well. He's talking about Casca's future, basically. Yeah, well, her future without him. So I, I can understand why he'd look like that, honestly. Of course. Yeah, sure. But. Yeah, you know, they're all, I think they're all, even though you see him smiling in some of the panels, I think it's, you know, there's nothing amusing and nothing, it's not a very happy time. Sure. Even, you know, even the jokes he makes, it's not a happy time for them. <laughs> He's still able to joke, though. He's actually taking it much better than most of them are at this point. You know, quick to move, quick quick to pivot, uh, more than yeah. anybody else in the group. He's ready to take action. Well, again, it fits his character, you know. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, the Raiders arrive, which Guts is the leader of, the captain of, and I like the the look of these guys. You know, we've seen them a couple times. We saw them in Volume Seven, right before Doldry, I think. But they're all, most of them are very rough looking. You know, uh, scars on their faces and just generally tough looking guys. And you have to imagine it was basically the bludgeoning force of the Falcon. So of course it's going to be composed of rather rugged types. But I just think it was nice their character designs for the most part fit that design as well. And yeah. they uh, they want they want guts to lead them. Uh, they want to come along with guts, whatever he happens to be doing. And it makes guts think about uh, what Judo said to him back in Volume Four when he was when he just joined about yeah. finding his place. Mm-hmm. And it's actually interesting. You know, it's interesting on several levels. The fact that the, the, the fact they want to follow him, which I think shows that despite what Casca thought early on, he really you know, made a place for himself amongst the band of the Falcon. And I guess he, you know, like these guys are his men. And, you know, <clears throat> Hulk says they care for him and he cares for them. And like you say, he makes him realize that what he was looking for all along was already there, you know, that he he belonged with his people. And, uh, you know, maybe he shouldn't have gone. I think that's what that's what he thinks. So, and it also shows that again, people are quick, you know, despite all the emphasis that was put on Griffiths over the years, people are quick to, to move to find a new leader, you know. Even in these times, you know, you said, uh, Judo was quick to pivot and such a thing, but these guys are like, they're ready for guts, you know. I mean, it didn't take them long to decide that. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, reinforcing what we saw earlier with, you know, some guys that say, oh, Casca, you can lead us, you know, these guys want to follow guts. So people are, you know, they're all making up their minds very quickly. I think it also shows the mindset of mercenaries, you know, even though this was a specific group of mercenaries and everything, <clears throat> I think it shows that they're quick to, you know, rebound. Yeah, totally. Although, um, <clears throat> it is actually complex, the emotions they're showing. <clears throat> their facial expressions, they're all, they're all obviously torn about this, you know. Even, even Gaston's face, you know. He's turned yeah. to guts in like a troubled moment. You know, he wants they, – they all want a direction. They all want a leader <clears throat> even if they are carrying this, you know, the sadness still that Griffith is <clears throat> no longer their leader. They're ready to move forward and I, I can understand that. Yeah. You know, the way the scene is left actually, 
one of the more uh, thought-provoking lines to me in the series, actually, the ones that you know I've always kind of taken to heart. You know, why do I always see these things after they're done and gone? It's, I thought that was a very applicable and powerful observation mm-hmm. for what hindsight is like. You know, not even just in a fantasy series like Berserk, but in real life as well. It's a very, course, appli- yeah. very applicable observation for all walks of life. I also have seen guys actually, uh, you know, thinks often. You know, yeah. he thinks he thinks of it several times, including you know. Uh, you know, the last time was, you know, when he went to look for Casca in volume 17, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's something that is really, I wouldn't say it's a, you know, uh, what to say, a recurring thing in his life, but yeah, you actually get to see him realizing that, you know, several times, you know, again and again and again until he it really clicks and he decides he would never make this kind of mistake again. So yeah, it's a very, very powerful, you know. Phrase, I agree. And um, <clears throat> the next scene takes us outside the wagon with Casca. I had a couple of questions about this scene. Uh, we see her, her shaking as she's sitting, kind of huddling herself against, leaning against a wheel. We're seeing the dokun dokun sound, which is the heart thumping sound. She's actually clutching her stomach area and thinking to herself. Now, if it weren't for her facial expression, when Guts comes here. She looks very surprised, almost in pain, actually, when he comes. She flinches uh, whenever he says, hey. Uh, I actually wondered, is she merely recovering from the ordeal inside the wagon with Griffith? Or is she having other sensations at this point, like morning sickness, for example? Well, you know, I thought about that, uh, you know, as well. But the thing is, uh, I think it's too early for her, you know, pregnancy. Yeah, to have, It to is having, really early. Yeah, to be having morning sickness. So I think it's just really a matter of her. I think she's in shock in a way, you know, like seeing Griffith in that state and then seeing him try to do that to her, you know, falling on her on top of that like that. It's uh, it's really shaken her. She's really distraught, you know. She's in a mess, you know. I mean, she's a mess. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that's uh, that's why it's like that. And she's so, you know, absorbed into that that she actually, she's surprised that, you know, it, uh, when he approaches what I like about this next scene is the way Guts reacts to this. You know, he reacts to this very, very delicate situation because Casca is at a crossroads herself yeah. and she realizes the, the the gravity of the situation she's in where this man that she wants to care for is so far gone that he's doing – he's causing her that anguish and that anxiety. And yet she still feels compelled to stay with her. And Guts comes in like a battering ram thinking, what's wrong? What made you cry? I'll fix it. I'll go fuck him yeah. up. He, you know? He's shaking. He's shaking her shoulders. Actually, <laughs> you know? that's it's, the kind of guy. You know? I love it. I love it. It's just a very guts reaction to that. To a very, very delicate situation. You know, and she screams at him. You know, stop it. You know, it's not like that. Uh, and so, co- stops him in her tracks, and she realizes. She then voices that she can't go with him. Actually, I'm sorry. I'm going a little too quick because I like the way this actually escalates. Because she tries to hide her feelings from him. She turns away from him. Uh, a tear yeah. rolls down her cheek. And then actually, she she looks surprised herself when tears just spill over all over her cheeks. You know, she's actually surprised herself, I think, yeah. with how much yeah, she's yeah. feeling, you know. Anyway, and then that's when she screams to Guts to, to stop. And then she says then, falling on her knees and holding him, that she can't go with him. And I, the the reaction on Guts' face, you know, it's clearly – it's not the answer he'd wanted Basically, well, I think I think he just shows surprise. I think he's just you know, yeah, close yeah, by sure. this, you know. And you know, you say she chooses, but I don't think it's you know ever any any 
you know, I don't think anything is clear, you know. I mean, we can talk about that more after that, but, you know, even though she tells Guts, you know, he should go and such a thing, nothing's ever decided. Guts never, you know, there's no, you know, final point on this. And I think that's the beauty of this volume mm. and what all of this happens. It, when Griffith rushes off, it cuts, you know, all these discussions short. But, you know, the point is, nothing final was ever decided. Maybe Gus stayed, maybe, you know, uh, they would have both gone, maybe, who knows, but the thing is, you know, we never we never get to see what the final resolution would be. That's so, true. I yeah, just the thing is, Go ahead. No, I mean, the thing is, you know, we are just, you know, we're showing the, the process of them, you know, her feeling obliged to stay, and him being torn by that, and that kind of stuff. We never actually get a resolution all of this so it's uh it also makes it you know interesting the fact we we never get a clear you know a final thing for that yeah it's true that there's no conclusion because obviously everything's interrupted by the eclipse it's just that she she seems i don't know resolute's the right word It, it seems like she's she's making the decision to not go with guts you know and and by default stay with griffith i mean but you're, you're, you're right that it's a tan, it's a, it's a, it's a situation that's malleable at this point, particularly with everything that happens. Yeah. So, yeah, I get especially what you're saying, since, since Gus himself stays several times, several times that he wants to stay as well. Yeah. So, but we should probably, you know, get through the scene first, you know, before yeah. we go that. <laughs> sure. Um, well, you know, the thing is, what does she say? She explains to Gus that, yeah, Griffiths now is so small and so fragile, you know, that a, the formerly proud Griffiths is just, you know, He's too weak, and so she she feels that she can't leave him. She can't, you know, abandon him like that because of what their history together is. You know, she can't, you know, she she can't leave. And so God says that he'll stay as well. And right I think there, right then, though, Griffith kind of you see that Griffith is able to hear them. I think yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, you're right to to point it out. Is that the, she she can actually overhear everything you know they're saying. Yeah. And when God says that he'll stay as well, you can say. I mean, I don't know, but from that panel, it, it looks like it's, you know, it pains him to say so. I mean, I mean, maybe not pain, but I, I guess, you know, he doesn't seem too pleased with that. He's doing it, you know, for her, I think, you know. Yeah. It, it, and, really, it shows what a good guy he is for even making that decision. I mean, he, he, it's obviously against his, his wishes to do that. Well, you know, yeah. and But the thing is, he also, I think he also feels responsible for what sure. happened. And he wants to help the guys and everything, but you know when he says so, Casca stops him, and she actually repeats, you know, tells him what he's told her before, you know, very simply that he doesn't want to be at the mercy of someone else's dream. He wants to be his own man, you know. Jose, he, you know, he doesn't want to be subservient to someone else, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, if they think back to the time as the fountain and everything like that. So, you know, uh, she, very simply, she doesn't want him to sacrifice his life to take care of someone else. She knows how important it is for him to be his own man, and she doesn't want him to throw it away, even for her sake. So even, even if it should mean abandoning her, you know, uh, she wants him to live out his life the way he wants to. So that's what I, I meant earlier by her, you know, selflessness is that she's, willing to, you know, let the guy she loves go away and, you know, Jose spend a, a pretty shitty life, you know, on her own without him because she would prefer that than to have him, you know, uh, lead a life he doesn't like. 
So yeah, I think it's a it's a pretty key moment for a character, you know, defining. I mean, not really defining, but it it's a final, you know, proof of that you know she's you know very altruistic, you know, even to that you know degree. I think that's actually a good moment to talk about kind of the big picture <clears throat> before Griffith makes his way off on the wagon with Wymere to show to chose such dense character development moments right before the eclipse and and really. This is the end of the character development for some of these characters. It's the end for Judo. It's the end for Pippin and, 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 and in many ways for Casca as well. Oh, you know? Judo still has got, he's got a big moment. Sure. Yeah. They've all got even Pippin. No, but I guess, yeah, no, not really character development. But, uh, yeah, in, in a way, it's the end of the line. I mean, this whole volume and, you know, 13 represents the end of the line for mm-hmm. pretty much all of them except guys, I guess. But I mean, in terms of the way he shapes Casca, Guts, and Griffith's relationships right before the end, you know, I guess put it in this perspective. Mira knowing this cataclysmic event is coming up, it's going to reshape the characters' futures for the future. He could have merely said, had the eclipse happened in a moment when they weren't expecting it, and then and it's all-encompassing. It didn't have to be at this tenuous situation where they're deciding on the, a hypothetical uh, scenario where Guts is going to go off and Casca is going to stay with Griffith. Mira chooses to make it this very precarious moment for all the characters to then have the Eclipse come bouldering in and smashing all those hypotheticals to ashes, you know. And so I wondered about that, what you thought about the reasoning for making this scenario more complicated. And if it's well, if it's seeding, you know, kind of the ground for the future. Well, you know, I think it's uh, – I, I think there's many good reasons for it. First off is, you know – the eclipse is one thing, it's a big event, but realistically, you know, it's not like, you know, after, you know, what they've all been through and what's just been revealed, it's not like, you know, they just be happy-go-lucky or anything like that. So I think it just makes sense that sure. okay. it's a complicated situation. And of course, that complicated situation also informs and plays a big part in Griffiths going off, his state of mind. You know, it's, you know, I said in previously in the previous podcast that, you know, what Wilde did, you know, uh, his intervention, the fact he messed up Griffiths, he showed to everybody the state Griffiths was in, that played a big part in their, you know, morale and in Griffiths' state of mind. And that also led to the sacrifice. And this is a continuation of that. Griffiths, you know, uh, doing what he did to Casca in such a pitiful manner. And Casca herself, you know, how to say, being ready to, you know, throw on a life to care for him because of his pitiful state. And he knows it's because of that. He knows she's not just in love with him. He knows she's in love with Guts, but she'll stay with him out of devotion because of his sorry state. You know, so all of this plays into his state of mind and that leads him to try to go away and, you know, to, you know, eventually self sacrifice. And beyond that, of course, I think uh, Mura at this point, he knew where he was going. What he was doing, so yeah, he was probably you know planning to make things complicated for the future. But I also think, very simply, you know, it makes the volume and the scenes more effective. You know, mm-hmm. like to have this kind of realistic relationship and some kind of—I wouldn't say it's tragic, but yeah, it's uh, it's very dramatic. You know, there's a lot of drama <laughs> there, a lot of complicated feelings and emotions. And I think all of this—the the fact the eclipse happened at this moment—you know, out of all the moments it happens now. I think it makes it all the more dramatic. You know, it's a very, very effective. 
it's at a time where not only the characters but the viewer is full of you know different emotions and there's turmoil and everything and then bam something huge happens and it just fucks everything up <laughs> and I think that makes it that makes it all the more effective man I think it's why it's so good there's so many layers happening here particularly between Guts and Casca I was just thinking as you were talking about if this were any other series this this moment between these two characters would have been a promise of good things to come before you know evil sets in and separates them you know it would have been guts and casca embracing and talking about the days they'll adventure in the future and then the eclipse separating them because of that but no it's not it's not it's no near nowhere nearly that idyllic it's it's them talking about having to separate or, or possibly having to separate, and then the eclipse yeah. happens on top of those layered emotions. So, and, the, and there's one thing to consider as well is that is their situation, their relationship is very young. I mean, they've known each other for a long time, but their love story, their romance is still very young. So it's, I mean, <laughs> when you just you know are like a newly formed couple, and you know you've got all of this that happens in your face, it's it's a lot to endure, you know, for that relationship. So there's all these things. All these things at once, it's uh, it's very very big. Yeah, the episode starts uh, with us seeing Griffith looking at Casca and Guts talking, uh, and her saying that you have to go. Uh, she's telling him to go. The Griffith is very reflecting on this moment, you know, giving his full, you know, massive eye at the scenario. What I like about this next couple pages is it's actually an image of himself that spurs him to action. No one else, no external influence. It's an idealized version of himself as a commander is the one that tells him, you know, to take up the sword and points toward the the kingdom. You know, when we see his eye, I'm not sure he's actually, you know, looking at the scene, you know, because you see all the light, the way the light hits his helmet, you know. Okay. So I think the focus on his eyes maybe more a way to show that he's in some kind of, you know, of the state of mind, yeah. you know, and that precedes, yeah, and that precedes uh, the apparition of <clears throat> himself, his younger self, uh, spurring him back to action. Sure. I like the effect. It's just a small thing, but the effect uh, surrounding the image of the kingdom on that top of that next page, with the, the way the lights kind of shimmering around it. Um, I don't quite know what it's supposed to represent, but uh, I think it's just a cool-looking effect. Yeah. Anyway, um, Griffith is leaning up, and it's you know representationally grabbing onto the hilt of a sword, and, and we know it's actually mirroring actions he's taking in real life as well to you know seize the reins of the horse. But we're not quite there yet. He still wants to chase the kingdom. The kingdom still burns bright in his eyes, basically, and he's uh, a little child version of himself runs past him telling him that you know it's, it's, the sun's not down yet we still can play yeah like i was running I towards like- the kingdom this uh, very childlike version of himself almost as if you know he's returning to uh, the, the childlike ideals as well yeah i think he's just you know seeing former versions of himself you know driving him on to 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 reach for the dream and i like that what they're telling me is very evocative you know when the sun isn't down yet you know mm-hmm. when we know that the eclipse is coming and they are not done playing yet you know uh, all of this i think is a uh, i think it's worded in an in interesting manner which you know hints at how he mm. viewed things and the events that are actually happening that kind of stuff sure also, the child's running away from darkness into the light as well. Yeah. It's a small thing. 
Uh, and then it comes back and snaps back into reality as Griffiths is, you know, voicing his, you know, feelings on the situation. <laughs> snaps back into reality with the, the, the wagon taking off and Guts and Casca being shocked at this. Uh, Guts immediately springs into actions and Casca's afraid that Guts or Griffith had heard, or overheard them saying that yeah. she was careless. Uh, Guts takes off in his own wagon saying, damn it, damn it. Um, chasing after Griffith. And we see Griffith has the horse reins in his teeth. Now this actually, this next couple, next few scenes actually shows just kind of how far mentally gone he was that a, that he thought this plan would work that, you know, he's chasing his dream. He's chasing a child version of him. And in reality, he's taking off on a horse. It's, it's he's, he's pretty far gone. It's probably the most clear cut example of him being kind of mentally almost not there anymore you know well i think what we what happens afterwards when he's the water is a <laughs> he's a clear Another, yeah sure yeah anyway um i like the, the cobblestone path uh shot of the kid the light source strong on him with the shadow behind him uh yeah and and what he's, he's, he's thinking you know that yeah it's you know still time mm-hmm. to play and you know, the past is still going on, you know, the kind of stuff. It's all, you know, very <clears throat> evocative of his, you know, mindset that the fact he can still reach his dream somehow can still go on. And also that he's, you know, it's all, almost he's, he's simplified the situation to a, in a, to a childlike mind, you know. And all he has to do is follow that kid and his kingdom will be right there. This playtime hasn't ended. These, the, the wording of it is all very childlike. Yeah, but we also can't. Uh, discount the fact it might be, you know, how to say, it might also be, you know, meant to be, like, he's meant to go there, you know, no matter how, so that might be, this kind of hallucination he's having, you know, might Mm. be purposely, you know, meant to lead him, you know, there. Planted? Yeah, I mean, who knows, it's hard to explain, but my point is, maybe it's a result of the, the state he's in, you know, the malnutrition, the dehydration or anything like that. Or maybe it's just, you know, that he just realized in what state he is. But in any case, it's, you know, it's le- it led him to do that. Yeah, I actually wondered. Uh, I didn't voice it because it is it is kind of an out there thing. But whenever Zod gets visited by the Falcon of Light, the Falcon of Light says that, that you know, he asks, is this dream? Is, am, I, am I dreaming? Zod says, and the Falcon says that I'm visiting you between, you know, dream and reality. You kind of think you have to imagine the God Hand might have sway in the uh, in the subconscious realm. Crazy, I don't know. No, I mean, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? It's hard to say. It's not impossible either way. As he's falling from the wagon, his, his wagon hits a rock. You know, he has this dream. So we see it splash as well. But uh, as, as the scene transitions, and he basically gets knocked unconscious, he has a vision of you know. What he imagines his life might have been like if if things had gone as planned, and Casca did stay behind with him, and guts did go off. We see his face; you know, his hair grows, his face mostly recovers, and scars remain. Well, and we don't we don't get to see much of it, so I think we, I don't think we can say for sure that he's got you know his face has completely recovered, but it's, no, I you, mean, know, you, see, you see his nose, you see his mouth, you see his eyelids are still there. I mean, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's some kind of a, yeah, it's some kind of a dream, you know, thing. So I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't I, think I, it's meant. I didn't, I didn't need to. I didn't mean to focus on the face thing. It was more like I just see a scar on his face, and that's all I was trying to say. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I, what I'm saying is, it's just you know, it's some kind of dream version of things, you know. 
Yeah. Sure. So it shouldn't be taken as any more, anything more than that. Sure. And Casca's talking uh, quite a bit about, you know, their quiet, happy life here, and she's wondering what their friends are doing out there in the world. And they've settled into a small life in the, the countryside. I like how he's enshrouded in darkness, and she opens the light to have the light pour in. Yeah. As well. She's um, talking about guts, but not by name, you know. Yeah, him. Just yeah, the guy swinging his sword around. Yeah, they have a they have a child together. Um, well, I know, you know, we, I wonder if you know the boy is meant to be his son or not, because you know that's one of the things they have, they have a boy, but I don't think it's ever specified that he's, you know, his son. Mm, so yeah, you're right. Wow. Uh, given that given that the boy is called guts, you know. Sure. I'm just it, wondering, it's, you know, it's her, it's her kid. He says mom, and the from yeah. The window. But you know, it's one of those things I I wondered when I you know read that is you know whether that's supposed to be his son or not because you know I mean I don't think his reproductive equipment is uh, functional you know after that year. I also so, thought about that, but similar to the argument we had about the scar, maybe oh, it's yeah, of an idealized version of the tree. Oh, you know? Of course. Just, just, just to be clear, something I just thought of when I, you know, checked the volume, you know, for this, I just thought, you know, actually nothing really specifies it. So, you know, yeah. it, clearly it's just, you know, it's just out there. It's not, nothing's sure, but you know, I just thought it was interesting to mention it that, you know, it's not really specified that he's his son and it could be, you know, like, I don't know, could be God's yeah. son. Just, you know. I also like that, you know, throughout this whole scene, you know, he's sitting upright. He, he looks relatively normal, but you know that he can't move. And actually, it's reinforced yeah. that when she she has to feed him yeah. uh, soup. And he never moves. He's almost like a statue, you know. Of course. He, just doesn't, yeah. he doesn't even tilt his head. Right. Um, and he actually is thinking as, as she's feeding him, you know, food that this, this might not be so bad. It's quiet life. But – what I really like about this, and I've mentioned this before, you know, the Behirat poke its head up from the soup. It's a representation of, you know, the the life that was promised to him from the Behirat. You know, that the that he could have seized the world, that that he was meant for something better. That you know, I'm, if he had, go ahead. I'm not. Sure, I'm just saying. I'm not sure the Behirat is poking his head, you know, from the soup. Like you know, I think he's just, you know, she's feeding some broth with, you know, like there's muscles in it, and I think like the Behirat takes takes the place of one of them, you know. So, I don't know the differences. That's more or less what I was saying. Is the period uh, appears well, in his? It's a, it actually has a sound effect next to it, as if it just appeared there. Yeah. So well, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know exactly what that sound effect means, but yeah, I don't know. I just don't think it's just emerging from underwater. But okay, it doesn't matter to me. The fact that yeah. here it seems to be here. It, yeah, I, I, I also like that. I like the fact it's uh, that's who he, he wakes up. You know, seeing the buried. Right. What I was trying to say was basically that it, it it breaks him from his trance because that's the life that he was promised. That's the ideal. That's the, the the life that he was promised was he was promised the world that he could have had so much more. And it's actually comes into play later on as well when Void talks about uh, to live within the remains of the bro- of a broken dream. That you could have had this quiet life, but you would have always known what could have been. Yeah. And this is, this well, is being- you know. That being said, I'm not sure, like you know, when the Beherit you know shows up, I'm not I'm not sure that's supposed to symbolize the life he could have had, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Just, you know, I don't know, to me it's just, you know, an interruption and that reminds him of, you know, the present or something like that. But, uh, but it's an interesting interpretation, I guess. <clears throat> sure. Anyway, it comes back and it snaps back into reality when the Behir, when he, he's, you know, I was about to say he senses the Behirat. That's not what happens at all. He thinks of the Behirat and that's what snaps him back into reality. And, uh, he realizes his arm is, you know, broken and the compound fracture. He starts laughing to himself at how basically how pathetic his escape attempt was that he thought he could do this. I mean, that's my interpretation of it. There's no well, yeah. dialogue or narrative. That's just I, I how think, I've always yeah. viewed it. I think you, yeah, that's a lot of interpretation. I think he's just, you know, at this point, he just raises his arm. He sees that it falls back like that. And he just, you know, bursts out laughing because of his situation. You know, it's, it's the kind of laugh, you know, it's a, it's a nervous laugh, you know, it's not really, nothing's funny. It's just the situation is, you know, and when you see his face, you know, like the profile of his face, you know, that's the shot that really shows he's completely insane to me, you know. It's a kind of mad, you know, laugh he's having. Sure. And right right after that, he sees that stump sticking out and he tries to, to kill himself. But, I mean, why would he try to kill himself if he didn't think of himself as pathetic? I, I think the arm breaking oh, spurring well, you know, I- on his... No, yeah, of his- course. I mean, you know, that's not in, that's not in doubt, you know. I, it's clear... It's clear he realizes what his situation is. And I think he already knew that. You know, when he was in the wagon, he was half delirious. But I think, you know, now he's, you know, he realizes his situation. And having had just that dream with, you know, Casca, he knows he doesn't want that life. So what's yeah. left for him? You know, nothing's left. So that's why he tries to kill himself. Right. Now, <clears throat> you know, he actually... Attempts to kill himself. Uh, I actually, I actually like that he's actually scared of this. You know, the intensity of the moment hits him with that. You know, focus on both of his pupils in that one shot. You know, he's yeah. he's he's scared himself of, of of you know taking his own life and here in this in this place. But um, I also like the atmosphere added to this scene throughout. Actually, I wanted to talk about some of the atmospheric moments here. You know, the blood hitting the water and then it dissipating like ink drops in water. Visually, it's interesting. What I like about this actually is his suicide attempt is he actually realizes the gravity of the situation or he's actually terrified of, of doing this, but he attempts to go through with it anyway. You get that uh, the long panel with both of his pupils in the shot and you can see that he's scared as well. And there's also a lot of – go ahead. Pretty resolute, yeah. Resolute, that's, that's not how I would read that. Like he's, he wants to do it, but you can see every shot of his face, he's, he's – I don't know. He's terrified of it. I don't know that I would read that well, as resolute. I wouldn't say terrified, but yeah, obviously he's apprehensive. But uh, I think, you know, I mean, he he, he mm. does go through with it, you know. So I think when it focuses on his eyes, to me, I I've, I see it as a kind of, a, it's more of a manic, you know, mindset he's in, you know, like he's, you know, he's both scared. I think he's both scared and resolute at the same time, you know, mm. because he doesn't really hesitate. He puts it, you know, it bleeds and just he lets it go. Well, of course, it fails, but you know, I actually wondered about that during this reread. I've always read this scene as a failed suicide attempt, but you know, if he's slicing one of his veins in his neck, he probably could have bled out there until guts found him and guts finds him. You know, well, there's, I, there's a chance he could have bled out there. I, I agree, but uh, you know, I don't think it's bleeding that much. You know, I don't think he's really touched a, a major artery. You know, because I think he would bleed more than that. Okay. But, uh, yeah, he, he might have died from it. I agree with that. But, uh, I don't think, like, he would have bled out in, uh, you know, in minutes. 
because it it seems it's the bleeding doesn't seem to go on for very long, so I don't think it was very deep. Okay, at least that's all I interpreted. So I like that shot of him after the the failed you know suicide attempt, or at least you know not immediately successful. I really love that shot of him in the lake with the sun in the background. You see all the clouds. You see the lake. You see the hills. You know in the back and that huge sun. And uh, I really like that shot. And uh, I think it's very foreboding, you know. It's uh, it's fitting. It's a continuation of all the ominousness we've gotten from the volume so far, and uh, and it feels very fitting because it's uh, it's really the dusk, you know, of a whole era, you know, the end of the golden age, you know. It's uh, really the sun is setting. It's also very that, ominous uh, as well. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's uh, it, it's you know fitting for the end of that time. And, uh, and of course, then we see that the, the Beherit has found its way back to his hand. This is a small detail, and I wanted to talk about it a little bit. I, again, I mentioned the atmospheric things that Mira does in this scene. But it's actually flies surrounding the water, kind of bouncing on the water, creating ripples. And you know, I, don't, I don't draw any meaning from it. I just think it's a nice cue that basically, you know, there's this, there's this terrifying, tragic thing happening, but there's still, you know, nature doesn't care. Nature is just proceeding on as usual. It's almost like I'm like mocking the scene itself, you know. This scenes of immense gravity, and then there's, there's just flies there as well. I don't know. Yeah, and the way I take it is also, and now that's, uh, you know, specific to me, but, you know, that the flies are, are there, you know, suddenly. I think it also shows that Griffiths is coming out of the introspective, you know, mindset he was in. Mm. And he realizes there are flies around, and then he looks down at his hand and he sees the Beherit. You know, Got like it, yeah. so far he he was very focused on himself and what he wanted to do, his life, that kind of stuff. And then you know when he gets that time to reflect, he notices the insects and he notices the Beherit. So to me, you know, it's a very it's a very you know intelligent way to break his yeah. introspection and you know bring it back to the to you know real uh, the real world. So that's really smart. That's actually that's that sounds that sounds about right for sure. And uh, yeah, the, I like the way the Beherit is, is you know picked up out of the water, still splashing, and also held in front of the sun, which also significant the way it's held. Of course, uh, it's a break in the episode, and uh, when it comes back, we see this very iconic shot of Griffith holding the Beherit outstretched in his arm, you know, leaning back on his broken hand next to the you know tree stump that tried to kill himself. On all very you know powerful imagery for the circumstance mm. that's about to happen. Anything. To himself, two times that the Behir was referenced by apostles, you know, Zod telling him that it'll return to him. We all saying that, you know, you can use it to summon, you know, the guardian angels. And what I like actually about here, he actually pulls like a Steven Spielberg technique in terms of what's being shown. You know, there's a the wind is blowing, and we see four separate shots of the uh, of the scenery, and it ends on one of Griffith looking at something, you know, with awe in his eyes. Basically, we don't see what he's looking at until later, and I actually think he's seeing the solar eclipse happen. And when it cuts to Guts, it's actually a little bit before that moment. You know, we're catching up with Guts to the moment of the solar eclipse. Yeah, well, I think he's uh, he's looking at the start of it, the beginning. You know? Yeah, yeah. Because when Guts actually catches up with him, it's already, you know, well in progress. So I think, yeah, he, he notices that it's happening. And uh, and yeah, I agree with that. It's uh, those shots, you know, of uh, of the wind, you know, are, are very very powerful, you know. Just after he's remembered his thoughts and wise word, words. <clears throat> um, Guts is thinking to himself, 
<clears throat> once again, kind of feeling guilty feelings about uh, the circumstances, and he wants to know what, what his role should be here. You know, yeah. uh, how, how responsible is he? And once he catches up to him, what's what's the next action they're going to take? You know, it, it's really emphasizing the fact that all, all the threads that brought them here are about to be cut, and you know, Guts himself doesn't know what his next step is going to be. Yeah, I, you know, it's again, I find it interesting. It goes back to what we were talking about earlier. The fact the situation is very complicated for everyone involved because, you know, like, as a reader, you know that it's not really, you know, like, I mean, Gus is, isn't really at fault here, but he himself seeing the situation like that, he's doubting himself and he's wondering if he should bear the responsibility of what's happened, you know. And of course, like you said, what he, what he can do now, what he should do now, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's the same for Casca, who actually, you know, we see her uh, right as Guts sees, you know, the, you know, he arrives and he sees the Eclipse. We, we cut to, you know, Casca and the others who are following. And she's also saying, you know, blaming herself, saying it was careless and thoughtless of her to have, you know, talked in front of Griffith. So, you know, both of them are blaming themselves for the situation while, you know, they're, they're not really at fault here. But, you know, because they care, because it's important for them, you know, they are, you know, Doubting themselves. <clears throat> sure. And, and yeah, like you said, it, it kind of has a, a moment of catch up for Guts to see these solar eclipse. Then it goes to the rest of the Falcons and then Casca sees it. And then all three of them are seeing it at the same time. It, it's really interesting how that happened. Yeah. Amira chose to depict it that way. Three separate kind of realizations of this big moment. And then there's the full page spread of, uh, of in front of Griffith seeing the, the solar eclipse happen. Yeah. And Guts wonders himself, you know, could this be, you know, I wonder if he's actually, if he's thinking that far back, when's the last time an eclipse was mentioned to me? Or if they even know what an eclipse is, you know? Well, uh, you know, the thing is, uh, that's probably just a translation of Masaka, you know, in Japanese. So, Oh, sure, yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah. It's probably, it doesn't necessarily have, you know, a big meaning attached to, but the thing is, Gus has known that a big event was coming, you know, he thought when yeah. he was, you know, fighting Wild and everything like that, he thought about Gus, you know, about Zod's words. So I think he might be, you know, that, that would be, I mean, if he were referring to anything, it would be that, you know, could it be mm-hmm. that time, is that event, you know, related to that, that kind of stuff. Uh, blood reaches the Behirat, and uh, at that point, the Behirat's eyes begin to open. You know, you can almost sort of say yeah, that was merely a coincidence that blood contact makes it do it. But I think it's merely—it's really the Behirat is it's sensing its moment of arrival as a hand, basically. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not sure we see actually that blood is reaching it. I think it's already there. You know, mm-hmm. like the, the the way the the three panel shots are focused is that you see the arm. You see, it's, you know, like it progressively zooms in on, on the Beherit. Yeah. So I, I think Mirai intends it to show that, you know, there's blood and that it, you know, it relates to blood. But mm-hmm. yeah, like, like you say, uh, the Beherit is, you know, it's awakening as Gutch is rushing towards Griffiths. Yeah. And it only really, you know, like wakens and screams when, you know, Gutch reaches him. So I, I think that's what's uh, the big deal here. And the blood is more of a symbolic or... Uh, yeah, a thematic thing, but it's not, you know, what's really, you know, activating it or anything like that. As as right. we know from other parts of, of the manga. I, I, that is one thing I wanted to make clear in this reread is, is actually the moment of activation is actually very <clears throat> unique to Guts. You know, it's not Griffith trying to kill himself and then blood reaches the Behir and the eclipse happens. And I know for a fact that's how some people have interpreted that progression happening. It's it's not though. I mean, look very carefully at the way the scene progresses. As guts, oh, course, yeah. 
as Guts is arriving, Griffith is trying to back away from him, you know, and starts screaming, you know, as much as he can. He's thinking to himself to stay for them to stay away. Yeah, yeah. As the solar eclipse, you know, completely finishes its, you know, path. I don't know what the technical word for that is when it actually settles in as a state, but um, yeah. Well, and Guts is, you know, what's interesting is that why Griffith is, you know, trying to get away and, you know, thinking that Guts should stay away. Meanwhile, Guts sees all the silhouettes of the apostles who are behind him. Mm-hmm. And that prompts him to rush ever more because he wants probably to protect Griffith from them. Oh, yeah. You can tell his his intent was to run to Griffith, pick him up, and then maybe get him out of that scenario, obviously, yeah. you know, to protect him. But Griffith sees it, of course, much differently. That He doesn't yeah. want Guts to bear him up on his shoulder. And so, you know, it's interesting that even at this point, you know, there's still a Kiporko, you know, uh, you know, regarding who wants to do what and why it should be done, that kind of stuff. So, you know, while Guts wants to, you know, go and protect Griffith, Griffith himself, you know, can't bear the thought to be once again at his mercy, you know, so, yeah. Right. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it bears note that in the volume form, the line is, is, is cut short. The volume form says, I'll never, I'll never again with you. And then there's an ellipsis before Guts reaches him. But uh, in the young animal, I believe it said, I'll never begin be able to forgive you. Yeah, it's, uh, I'll never be able to forgive you again. It's what it says originally. And so the, it was edited for the volume to remove forgive, to leave it uh, open to interpretation, or at least to, you know, to leave it, you know, well, I guess, yeah, open to interpretation. A little ambiguous, but I think the implication is quite clear, even without that finishing. Yeah, yeah I, I think Mira, you know, removed it so that it would be more interesting for the readers. I, I guess more mysterious, but the intent uh, remains the same, is that at that time, you know, it's what, it's a point during which Griffiths, you know, I guess it's like the pre-sacrifice. At that time, he's, you know, already decided that, you know, he can't forgive God mm-hmm. again. And, uh, yeah, and like we said uh, before, it's uh, the, the point where, you know, the Beherit, you know, actually, you know, uh, let's say, awakens fully and uh, shrieks. And uh, right, right before that, though, right? I mean, I just like there's a moment of, of reflection for Griffith. You know, he was dreading Guts arriving, and Guts puts his hand on his shoulder, and then there's this yeah. one long panel of Guts' reflection in his eye, as if, oh yeah, of course, yeah. as if that was it for him. It was, a, you know, a very inner reflective moment, and yeah, then it and, comes back to reality, sort of. And, and Guts has a worried face. You know, the, the thing is that he's got, you know, the face reflecting his, his purple is, you know, worried. At least that's how it looks to me, worried. And you know, I, I think it, uh, it shows. That Griffith doesn't want to be looked down upon that way, you know, yeah. as that kind of guy. It's also something that plays a part, you know. It's not just the fact that Gus cares for him, but it's why he does. And, you know, the position the boss are in now, you know, not just them, but, you know, everyone else, you know, the the whole band of the Falcon, Casca and everybody is, you know, Griffith's position relative to them. The fact is, you know, Dream is broken and right. himself is broken. You know, and, and really, and, and there's this scene... The reasons for the sacrifice, all this stuff has been talked to death for decades and everything. But it's really, you know, I think you can kind of boil it down to even beyond his physical state that, that he didn't want to accept that his dream was over. That he, he didn't oh, want yeah. to. Go, he didn't want to go back and live in that world. You know, all, all, aside from all the details that happened, that was not an option for him. Yeah, of course. Very simply, is that he lived for his dream, and that's that was it. You know, there was nothing else for him. He didn't care about anything. He didn't care about anything except that. And even, you know, I think even his 
you know, let's say his move on Casca, you know, La Folic on top of her and everything like that, even though it was something he did to, how to say, reconfort himself in that moment, you know, I don't think something, like he didn't want a life with her, you know, that's yeah. not what he wanted. And, you know, that's why the dream, like he woke up for the, from the dream and he immediately tried to kill himself, you know, that's not something he wanted. It's more of a, you know, <clears throat> it's not, it's not the life for him. Right. The Behirat awakens and it starts crying tears of blood. And uh, there's this kind of aura that spits out right at the base of where Guts and Griffith are. And you can begin to see the transformation happen immediately underneath them. I like that it hits Guts. You know, you can kind of sense it that it's the t- tidal yeah. wave kind of hits him. Kind of reminds me of the tidal wave that hits them after Fantasia as well. Yeah, I love, I love that the... You know, that, that shriek from the Beherit, you know, creates that kind of shockwave, you know, and, uh, yeah. change the world around them. I, it's, it's a really cool effect and I really like it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's very well done and I think it was a clever way for Mura to depict how, how that came to be, you know. Right. It could have appeared suddenly or something like that, but it shows a progression, but. <clears throat> yeah. And then right after that, you, you get that picture of the two of them, Gus and Griffith with the sky made of faces and, you know, that's incredibly nightmarish, you know. It's oh it's, yeah, it's a hellish Partic- scene. Particularly, I mean, it doesn't really need to be voiced, but the number of them, the 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 fact that most none of them have any eyes, it's all dark, and the way it's drawn and portrayed is all very nightmarish, as you say. I also like it's all varying levels of decay or ages, you could say. You know. Yeah. I have to kind of wonder what composes the faces that are here. And obviously there's no answers for a question like that. It's just an otherworldly realm. But I imagine it has something to do with the vortex of souls or at least the evil that's contained within the vortex has some some kind of reflection here. They're able to call into all the different beings that may have died. Use them as a wallpaper. Yeah, I agree. Some kind of, you know, souls or whatever, something (laughs) like that. Those that have died in anguish because they all have terrified looks on their faces for the most part anyway. Well, some some do look, you know, peaceful. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess you're right. So most of them don't. Most of them look pretty pissed off, or or anyway. Yeah, who, not who happy knows. to be dead. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we get reaction shots from every single one of the major falcons uh, as we look at the scene. Uh, as it zooms, kind of continually zooms out. I like in the one long vertical panel we have of it before the episode ends. You can actually see the foreground of the panel. Uh, shows the, what the floor, the root, the, you know, the bottom actually looks like up close as a, as a matter of it being on the hill, you know, shows it in perspective what it looks like for even from a distance. I thought that was cool. Yeah. In addition to the, of course, the full page, you know, mountainous landscape they're in as, you know, they're in this, now they're in this completely otherworldly dimension suddenly. Uh, transition over into the next episode. Uh, actually, we see Puck's ass uh, covering over the Behirat. Uh, even then, Puck and the Puck and you know Betchy had a relationship. Even in even in this little preview thing here at the bottom of the page. Yep. Anyway, uh, obviously, it's uh, Rickert had been picked up by these guys and, and uh, traveling. I guess they're performers. I can't quite tell. I forgot what their actual wording is, but or their troop. That's what he says. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Rickard's traveling with them, and he's, he's still obviously reeling from what had happened with him and the apostles at the other Falcon camp. But uh, he'd ask to be taken to the border, and uh, he gets out. And before he gets out, the leader of the troop hands uh, Rickard a, a thing of elf powder, saying that yeah. uh, it's our secret troops' remedy. Kind of calling back to what Judo had said earlier about 
where he got the elf powder. Kind of makes some sense. Further to yeah. tying the thread of Puck to, to to judo and all them. Yeah, and we and we knew from you know uh, his introductions that he had been traveling with you know performers before, so right. It's you know it's fitting. <clears throat> And uh, we actually don't see Puck really outright until later on, but he see his silhouette for a while, and you see him looking at uh, Rickert as he's walking out. He's talking to a fortune teller. I'm assuming that's who that's supposed to be, or what the role is supposed to be of a fortune teller. I almost said yeah. a magician, but it's it's more of a fortune teller because of the, the focus on the crystal ball and all that. Yeah. I didn't have a lot written for this section because, honestly, a lot of it seems kind of just like, I mean, mumbo-jumbo to a certain extent. Uh, talking well, about the giant One thing that's star. interesting is that Puck, you know, comments on the fact that uh, Rickett was, you know, afraid of him as soon as he saw him, which yeah. plays on later on. And it's, uh, it's also uh, a hint of, you know, what happened with Roshin and what's going to happen later on. So I, I think that was interesting. I actually wonder if readers at the time wondered what Roisin was. Like, was she an evil elf, you know, if they didn't know if she was an apostle or not? Oh, who knows? In any case, you know, says, uh, yeah. But actually, it is kind of neat. I called it mumbo-jumbo, but it is kind of neat how a fortune teller, not necessarily a magician, would interpret the eclipse because he or she detects some major event that's about to happen and and compares it kind of to cosmological events or astrological events calling the the white stars being occluded by the moon and the sun. Um, and of course, you know, <clears throat> Rickert, or not Rickert, what the hell, Puck has kind of a reaction that, that guts might too. You know, I don't get it. If it's that bad, you know, he's kind of simplifying the whole situation as this guy's talking very high, uh, high concept stuff. Well, you know, I think it's a woman actually. I'm sorry. Oh, is it a woman? Yeah. I don't, I don't, I didn't see any boobs. Yeah, well, you know, at her age, but uh, okay. I'm pretty sure it's uh, pretty sure it's a woman. Okay. But uh, yeah, well, you know, it's uh, astrology. It's a kind of, uh, you know, it's a lot of stuff like that. But yeah, I, I like how Mira actually, you know, took the time to, you know, to put it in those words, you know, because the eclipse is a kind of an astronomical. It's an astronomical event, so I, I like the fact he tied that to astrology. You know, I don't know. I think it's a it's pretty nice, even though, like you say, it just serves to reinforce the fact that there's a lot of evil stars, which are apostles, you know, focusing in the middle of a giant white star, which is occluded. Well, she you know. she says some things that kind of resonate uh, with, with things we know about causality and, and, and you know, God influencing the world. Uh, she says uh, everyone is, uh, there's no sense in, in, in trying to interfere because Puck asks if we should stop him from going. Yeah. Because she says it's basically futile, you know, things will be how they are, you know. Yeah, and he has a part to play in that event, is that kind of right. stuff. Yeah, actually, the that see, that part of the scene ends uh, right before she was able to tell Puck that the fact that you and he met might be significant as well. Uh, obviously, yeah. the paths will cross again. I like the ominous yeah. shot of, of Rickard interpreting the eclipse as well, seeing it in the distance, you know, that one long shot of him looking at it. As if he's like Luke looking at Tatooine's moons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty, you know. That final shot of him with the eclipse is, you know, how to say, pretty cool, I think. Yeah. Uh, and then Puck, you know, is leaving as well, apparently, and tells them. <clears throat> it says, wonders if he, he's making light of the eclipse, saying, basically... It's probably a demon looking through that, you know, it's probably a big demon's eye. What I like about that, actually, that comment is 
the next page actually zooms in through the eclipse. So yeah. it's seeing through to the other dimension. You know, you're, you're looking from the outside to the center of it and then beyond through the sun. It's a really cool effect. Yeah, I agree. And then we're back to uh, inside the eclipse uh, and the other dimension. And everyone's processing what's happening and screaming. Um, I like that there's a lot of details here. Right when we get to, right off the bat, we see that the, the floor is groaning or moaning, you know. So you have to imagine the kind of sound effects are happening almost constantly. So there's probably this endless drone of like just horrible sounds coming from all around them. And um, Puck, oh, sorry, Puck, Carcass's reaction. I, I like the the silhouette of his face, of his pupils and, and teeth. Uh, yeah. Lit up like that, as if he's just in utter terror, wondering looks, if they're in a dream. Yeah, he looks horrified. Yeah. And Casca, of course, is able to yell them into, uh, into, into some sense to stay close formation, you know, and gets comments that, you know, she's pretty incredible, able to take siege or take siege, control of the situation. Even when it's out of hand like this. Yeah, I, I like the panel where she tells him to shut up. You know, she looks really wild there, you know. And uh, I think it, uh, it's pretty fitting for a character also, you know, that kind of energy. <clears throat> yeah. Griffith, however, is still very wrapped up in what had just happened. You know, he's still crying. Uh, Guts is wondering himself about the Behirat and the way it had changed shape. And yeah. He's able to put some things together, basically. Realizing that the tears on the Behirat's face look like the ones on Gut's faces or Griffith's face as well. Yeah, which is, you know, I mean, it's, uh, it's a bit strange that he's crying tears of blood, but, you know. It is very strange. <clears throat> I agree. Anyway, the apostles have gathered. All of them are naked. Maybe that was part of the ceremony. You must arrive naked, you know. Bring your own nakedness. Everyone well, has to you arrive. know, it's time for the show, so. So get it's your str- yeah. All you can eat and rape, you know, the fat, you know. <laughs> uh, and then the, the apostles start talking about, you know, this being the, the feast, the eclipse you know, that happens once every 216. Go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I'd like to point out the fact that the scenery is also very nice here. The way it's drawn, you know, those big mm-hmm. faces and the fact you see all those apostles, you know, over them, you know, and, uh, you know, the way they're pictured in the, in, you know, say, that dark way with bright eyes, you know, that kind of stuff. I think it's very effective in conveying the, the kind of, you know, again, hellish nightmare, you know, this is for, for the Hawks. <clears throat> yeah, and we'll, we'll get there, but the fact that all of these are apostles, it just adds to just how overwhelmingly, you know, against the odds they are at this moment, you know. Yeah. But also, as the scene progresses... It's almost with reverence that they treat the Falcons at this point. It's like, you guys should be so lucky to have ended up here as part of this great event, the Eclipse. Boy, you guys are going to have a great time. This only happens once every <laughs> 216 years. You guys are in for a treat. This is kind of like the Super Bowl for Apostles. You know, when they, when the God Hands start arriving, you know, they're cheering and, you know, raising their arms and cheering. It's just a really interesting. The, well, it's also, uh, you know, it's not an event that happens very often, so you can oh, yeah, bet they'd be happy for it. <laughs> but we'll get into it. Uh, one of the apostles talks about the advent of the four guardian angels uh, right as Slan's head begins rising. What I like about the God Hand's appearance here, every single one of them incorporates the scenery in some way. 
Uh, either they're coming up as one of the faces, as Slon does, one of the huge mountainous faces, or they're coming down from the sky like Ubik, or Conrad's forming from the, the ground, or Void is coming down for, as the sun, kind of bleeding out of the sun. They all incorporate some of the otherworldly imagery, which I thought was a neat yeah. touch. Yeah, and uh, it also shows the kind of powers they have in that realm, you know, because like you see Slan, you know, she gets up, she's she's huge, she's towering, she's a giant, but then, you know, like through some trick of perspective, mm-hmm. she's not, you know, she just, you know, she's not big anymore, you know. It's, you know, it just happens like that. You know, the same way with Ubik, you know, when you see him go down like that, he's huge, and then, bam, he's just, you know, his normal size. So I think it also goes to show the kind of mastery they have over that, you know, that world. Yeah, I think perception and perspective comes into a lot of play in a lot of them, like you said, with Slans and Ubix in particular, the way they're shown huge and then suddenly they are of normal, relatively normal size. It's pretty interesting. But Slans also has kind of an interesting touch because she comes when she rises initially. She has like raven black, you know, feather wings. Yeah, feather wings. Yeah, and then she's not wearing any carapace armor. And then uh, when the wings cover her, there's this subtle transformation that happens where her wings turn into bat wings, and then she's wearing kind of the I don't know what to call it chest plate, uh, corset. Yeah, her corset kind of and you know the neck uh, neck, neck scene. Her hair also changes as well from being normal human hair to being the tendril-like hair that we know her to have. Yeah. Uh, Ubik's face comes from the, the, the ceiling. Uh, ceiling seems like a poor word for what that is. You know, it's just so yeah, massive. The, but The sky, I guess. Sky. Sky. There you go. That's much better. But I also like, you know, the light on his eyes, you know, the bright shining light on his reflected from his eyes. Kind of spilling out like a teardrop from the ceiling, but also that you know the the sky that he's surrounding uh, is is like moaning at his yeah. advent, you know, swirling around him like that is really cool. It looks more like goo than you know a yeah, teardrop yeah. to me. <laughs> goo, sure. Something disgusting, you know. Nickelodeon gag. That's what it is. Oh yeah. And I, you know, I like how he was started so massive, and it actually is this small little man clutching his hands with little fins. You no know, flapping in the air in actuality. Yeah. Conrad's is the least impressive of the of them. He just kind of peers off in the corner in the darkness. Uh, one of the many faces kind of just goes up, and then that's it. There's not much to that one, unfortunately. Well, yeah, he's formed out of all of the the faces. Yeah, you know, like all the faces cover him, and then mm-hmm. then he gets his form. It's uh, yeah, it's very strange. It's the least impressive, like you said, but it's uh. It's very strange, you know. It's uh, it's a bit disgusting as well. I'd actually never noticed he only has four fingers before. I really? Never, I've never even counted them before. Well, that's in, I, I'm pretty sure that's in the quiz, man. Was it? Well, I failed. That's, that's why I never passed the quiz. <laughs> you did pass it. You just didn't get a perfect score. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. I never perfected it. Anyway, uh, and of course, voids. I mean, what can I say? It's It's been my avatar for like fucking six eight years you know it's a, a, a very visually striking uh effect here of the sun kind of spilling out like ink uh yeah into the and actually i like how it actually cascades down around the elements of the faces you can kind of see it spilling like a waterfall almost until it yeah. becomes something even more blurry or ethereal and then it f- so suddenly becomes a solid form yeah and you know reality while Slan was already fucking huge, he's, you know, like he towers over them. He's like Ganishka, you know, I mean, as, yeah. as far as the size goes, you know, it's huge. 
There's also four full pages dedicated to his transformation. <laughs> wow, you know, he's a then, he's a most he's a most important one. <laughs> and I'm not saying uh, and that only the shot, to... And you know, we we have we reached the same page we did in the volume preview image with all of them gathered like that, and Void, you know, looking like he's towering over all of them. That's as far as I think we can make it today, but obviously there's a lot more to talk about because uh, the show is just starting for the Eclipse, so lots more to dig into next time. So tune in to Volume 12, Part 2 in a couple weeks. <laughs>